You're listening to the Gov Future Podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we talk to Ignatius Buck Liberto, who is Director, Cybersecurity Risk Management and Compliance, Office of the Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of Energy, DOE. We discuss how government compliance, regulation, and laws, and executive orders relate to emerging cybersecurity threats, zero trust, and how is it evolving in the agency and staying up to date on evolving technologies to effectively mitigate risks and maintain a strong cybersecurity posture. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the GovFuture podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer, and we really hope you've been enjoying many of our episodes. We are now queued well into many months of great interviews with government thought leaders dealing with many of the innovative technologies and things we've been talking about for the past many, many months. Some folks really cutting edge, some folks dealing with the here and now of today and dealing with kind of the systems we have and how we make use of the organizations that we have and the skills that we have. And that's just as important to understand in the context of everything we're trying to accomplish, the mission of our organizations and our agencies and the country as a whole. And for many of you who are listening, I really encourage you to subscribe if you aren't already to the Gut Future podcast, because this is really a good place to go to hear interviews with public sector thought leaders and insights in general into how governments and public sector agencies across the board, not just U.S. federal, but also civilian and defense and state and local and even some international governments and hear how they're adopting transformative technology, and having conversations on key topics that are helping you, our listeners, and our GovFuture members learn the latest innovations and best practices, and just in general, try to stay ahead of innovation in the public sector. Exactly. And GovFuture really is a community for public sector innovators. If you're not familiar with it, it's the fastest growing community of government innovators, and you can learn more at GovFuture.com. But we find it's really important to bring you know, these discussions to our community and let everybody, you know, have a a seat at the table when we're talking about this, which is why it's so important for us to bring in, uh, you know, topics around automation and advanced analytics, cybersecurity, IT modernization, and of course, AI, everyone's always talking about that. But we, you know, that's why this is so important. And we want to make sure that our podcasts are representative of those topics as well. So for today's podcast, we're really excited to have with us Ignatius Liberto, who is Director, Cybersecurity Risk Management and Compliance, Office of the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Energy. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me here today, Kathleen. Thank you, Ron. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your role now at the Department of Energy. All right, absolutely. So as she said, my name is Ignatius Liberto. I go by the nickname Buck uh, from a tragic hunting accident many, many years ago. Um, My path into the world of cybersecurity was not a direct one at all. I used to make fun of the nerds in the nerdery. And, uh, and I'm certainly not a card-carrying nerd, at least not yet anyway. Uh, spent 32 years in the United States Marine Corps in infantry and special operations. And, uh, and when I got out, I realized I needed to reinvent myself. And, and cybersecurity was a very interesting path. 
but I, I didn't go that route initially. I ended up at United States Cyber Command, uh, working for their premier joint task force and doing uh, and conducting defensive cyberspace operations, um, protecting uh, the Department of Defense Information Network, the world's largest uh, network uh, from advanced persistent threats and from um, um, rogue nation states that are out there trying to get our information. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Along the way, I picked up a master's degree from Tulane University in cybersecurity, and I parlayed uh, uh, the three years I spent at U.S. Cyber Command, which was about 10 years worth of uh, knowledge, and I was very fortunate to get uh, hired on board where I am now with Department of Energy. I quickly realized that there's a big difference between conducting defensive cyberspace operations for a warfighting combatant commander and doing cybersecurity risk management oversight and compliance for the Department of Energy. Still national security focus, but now I deal in the world of uh, risk management, um, quantitative risk assessments, government compliance based on the many different rules and regulations, executive orders, as well as do, um, leading our cybersecurity awareness and training team. Um, cybersecurity is a team sport, and I'm very, very happy to play a small but important role for the Department of Energy. Yeah, that's fantastic. And yeah, it really is. And one of the interesting things about security and cybersecurity in general is that it's never ending. It's a constantly evolving, uh, both the nature of the threats and the sophistication. And just it's always like, you know, you you, ha you may have a house with a thousand doors. You leave one door unlocked. It doesn't matter that 999 other doors are locked. It's the sad but true state of uh, of having to be constantly vigilant and always aware and always on top of things, which makes it a challenge. And I'm sure is a, is a part of what makes it challenging for you. And I think um, given that we're talking about compliance, we're talking about regulations and laws and executive orders, uh, maybe many of our listeners might not be familiar with just in general, the the, uh, the scope of all the things that agencies and organizations may need to be aware of uh, in the context of cybersecurity. And given your role, maybe you can you know, highlight for our for our listeners some of the, the most important, you know, compliance, regulations, laws, executive orders that, that impact uh, much of the work that you do. Absolutely. You know, the first thing I like to say is that compliance is just that compliance with rules and regulations. And what we're trying to do right now is migrate from a compliance mindset to a, a, a risk informed, uh, threat informed operational risk assessment and then quantify it in a way that 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 we can bring to executive leaderships. What is the impact in dollars to their core business functions? So we're in the progress of moving in that direction. But to answer your question directly, uh, there's three laws and an executive order that, that really drive my daily, weekly, monthly, and quarterly schedule. Uh, yeah, there's the FISMA, the Federal Information Security Management Act of 2014, uh, that really is an act of Congress that directs all um, federal government organizations to, to have uh, security controls on their networks is FATAR, which is the IT Acquisition Act that talks about doing due diligence as it relates to supply chain risk management and ensuring that uh, we, we are compliant with, with certain rules and regulations, specifically where and who we could get our components from as we introduce new hardware and software into our enterprise networks. Uh, there's also the FAMRAMP Authorization Act. Uh, which talks about the uh, security control mechanisms for all cloud-based services. And Executive Order 14028, signed by President Biden in the summer of 2021, really drives the um, moving to cloud-based services, instituting across all federal government enterprises, multi-factor authentication. You know, the idea of migrating beyond just a login and password um, and, and going to hard tokens, going to... Uh, uh, to um, 
to other uh, authentication capabilities um, using biometrics uh, and other hard tokens to ensure that we're we are who we are as as we're uh, authenticating and uh, and getting the proper access based on our role base in, in the work environment. And lastly, the migration to a zero trust architecture. And, uh, and and so we have some very specific working groups that are getting after all that at the Department of Energy. I'm involved in a few of them, so I understand what's going on. Uh, but I'm not leading those efforts. I'm, I'm I'm leading the efforts for the compliance, oversight, and training. Yeah, you know the idea and topic of zero trust comes up quite a lot. It's you know one of those hot topics in cybersecurity, and it's gained a significant following. So, how are you approaching the concept of zero trust, and how is it evolving in your organization? You know, I love the fact that you 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 said the concept because I think right now that's what it is. Um, we have so much legacy architecture. We have so many legacy protocols. We have so many role based um, approvals and and um, and access authorizations out there that that zero trust is a concept. Uh, because it's going to be expensive, in, in my opinion, and it's going to be time-consuming, also in my opinion, to, to to really get to full implementation. So I think the concept, number one, uh, has already begun. Um, in the good old days, and I'm, I'm not going back that many years, uh, probably five years or less, um, the mindset of, um, of access was always allow all, deny by exception. That was based a lot on your, your perimeter security. Uh, at some point, we, we got very wise. We, the federal government, said, stop. We need to make this a deny all, allow by exception. And, and that certainly helped out a lot as we move forward. And that's really part of the zero trust architecture is, is at an enterprise level and not at an enclave or, or lower level. At an enterprise level, be able to manage you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of users to ensure that not only they are who they are and they have the right access, but they have the authorities to access specific um, servers, for example, a database server or a specific database server or an email server or a web server within the uh, the network's uh, architecture. So zero trust architecture uh, is gaining a lot of momentum. It was directed in the uh, executive order signed by the president, and we're moving in a very good direction. And, uh, and it's going to require innovation. It's going to require partnership with our vendors. It's going to require everybody buying into the concept and then ultimately having an implementation program uh, that can meet those uh, very specified goals and objectives. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and key. And I think it's a lot of the same uh, story we're hearing from a lot of folks about uh, the. Con that's part of why we say it's a concept, an idea. Some people refer to it as an architecture. Some people refer to it more as a philosophy or a, tech, a, 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 a network uh, perspective. But it, but really, it, it's it's a lot of those things wrapped up into one, just like physical security is not just about fences and checkpoints and ID cards and all those sorts of things. It's all those things, right, wrapped up into a overall strategy and a posture and a position. And we're, we're even in physical security, we're, st we're still learning how to do that uh, better. I guess we've had that since we've had forts and walls a few thousands of years ago. So um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, in general, you know, in what, especially what you're focusing on with compliance and risk and dealing with emerging 
threats and things that are the world keeps changing, the world keeps evolving. I mean, how are you keeping up to date? Like, what approaches are you are you taking to just maybe stay ahead of of kind of where things might be going, or to at least maybe stay up to date with how other folks are are dealing with cybersecurity threats, maybe evolving technologies or evolving strategies. Um, either with other agencies outside the the agency, even even in industry, just kind of curious how how you're 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 dealing with that. Okay, okay, that is a that is a very loaded question, and I, we could probably spend days talking that very topic. Uh, for my swim lane, number one, I'm going to reemphasize that cybersecurity is a team sport. Uh, there is no silver bullet. Uh, it, it really starts. I mean, let's break it down uh, the most basic level. It, it starts with number one, everybody doing their job. You know, it starts with users. Uh, when I when I was um, at Fort Meade working with uh, in defense of cyberspace operations, we called it the power of one. If an adversary sends you know ten thousand spear phishing emails, all it takes is one user uh, to click on that link, open that document, let those malicious macros explode, deliver the payload, and then start the cyber kill chain uh, within our network. So so it starts really with training and awareness with the user. It also starts with you know system. Um, um, network engineers and, and security defenders doing their job, checking the logs, looking for the anomalies. Is 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 machine learning? Is is automation helping? Absolutely. When you look at the progression of just intrusion protection systems and next generation firewalls and all that jazz, from a technology standpoint, we're certainly help. So we're looking for those anomalies that will then trigger alerts that that will help the defenders. Um, but, but the adversary is smart, the adversary is real, the adversary learns, the adversary knows what our defenses look like, they know that we have a layered defense, they know that we're hardening our perimeter. Uh, so, so they're going back, uh, you, you know, you, you talked about, you know, you know 3000 year old technology of walls and forts. Well, they're, they're, they're also using good old fashioned social engineering. So you have to be really vigilant. That's where a good training and awareness program starts. But, 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 but that is just part of the solution. Um, and, and then, so we run a program called CyberFire. It's a premier incident response training course run by some of the best and brightest minds within our national labs. And we invite many um, program offices and other national lab partners to come join us. Uh, we run this training event twice a year, last a week. We also invite the U.S. military, other militaries, uh, academia, industry, uh, as well as many international partners. And so when we run this training, we really get after looking for these things in information sharing and network. So again, it's, it's, it's understanding what the commercial threat intelligence It's partnering with the United States uh, intelligence industry and, uh, and getting the classified intelligence. And it requires liaisons. It requires building partnership capacity. And then also you know, having a very, very robust incident response team. And I've got partners uh, that, that work across OCIO that, that are dedicated to incident response. And we've got some incredible folks uh, especially within our National Nuclear Security Agency and the national laboratories that, that are on point as it relates to that. So you have to focus on, on the risk management side and the compliance side, which I call left of the incident. And then you have to have a very robust capability for that continuity of operations and have resiliency uh, so you can get after an incident when it does occur. And the good news is, is that the Department of Energy is resourced across the board to handle all those yeah, that's great to hear. And I think, you know, education is so important. I like that you said, you know, the it, it really is just that one person, that one place where things can come in, they clicked on something by accident or, you know, the, and it's getting so sophisticated. Sometimes you can't really tell. 
um, you know, they're they're smart <laughs> criminals out there, so they make it look good. Um, you know, but you had talked about this cyber, this working group that you're in for cyber. So I I love that you're in there. And is this just a Department of Energy thing? Are there people in other agencies that are there as well? So that's a great question. So obviously, Department of Energy has its own internal working group. And then through organizations like CISA, um, which works with Department of Homeland um, Security, they will run more of the whole of government. Uh, so really, uh, so yes, we have representatives that go to the whole of government meetings. At the same time, internally within the uh, Office of the Chief Information Officer, we have our own internal meetings to look at our federated network and see what we can do to increase our cybersecurity posture, while at the same time being compliance with all the laws, rules, and regulations. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know one of the other great things, we've had some really fantastic interviews. Um, anyway, I think Kathleen, look, we're, we're, we had an interview with uh, the uh, head of CISA. Yeah, with Martin Stanley, we had at CISA. So we'll link to that in the show notes and make sure that uh, listeners can listen to that as well, because it is great, right? I mean, that's why we really want to interview people from all different agencies, uh, state, local as well, because there's a lot to learn. And I think it's important, you know, knowledge sharing is incredibly important. And it's something that's not done as much as it should be, which is one thing that we're helping, you know, bridge that gap, which is why we have our podcast and we have our GovFuture forum events, both online and in person, because we want to bring together different agencies and say, hey, look, we all have some of these very similar problems. Sometimes people get very focused, right? Which is both good and bad. And they go, well, the, you know, they can get tunnel vision. And they said, well, that's not exactly what we do. So we we can't look at other agencies. And it's like, take one step back and say, I understand it's not exactly what we're doing, but we all need to worry about cybersecurity, right? We all need to say, how is automation going to help us do our jobs better? How are we looking at IT modernization? Some of these big, broad topics, right? And that's why we want to make sure we're having these discussions. So, you know, with that too, I, I like that you have this working group and that you are bringing up some of these discussions. Maybe can you touch upon just a few of the broad challenges and maybe how you're going about addressing some of that? All right, so let's talk big data analytics real quick and know that is not my strength and it's certainly not my swim lane. But I recall when I was at Fort Meade uh, and, and, I, and I'm sensing we still have it going on here at Department of Energy is how do you connect these big data lakes? How do you build these uh, canals, if you will? Uh, because everybody's collecting data. We collect data, uh, Department of Defense collects data, Department of Justice collects data, Department of Homeland Security, and so forth. So how do we how do we connect the data? And then ultimately, now, now you've got terabytes upon terabytes uh, of data, and how do you actually um, sort through the data, do trend analysis, do the do the searches, and, and, and then make and, and then make sense out of it? Well, that's where machine learning and artificial intelligence will certainly help is connecting the big data lakes and then and then having the ability to process uh, what it's digesting and then, and then give us a trend or even or even get into predictive analysis. I know when I left Fort Meade three years ago, that was certainly some of the direction that they were moving in. They were very excited about the capability. Um, here at Energy, uh, it, it all starts. It all starts with um, with relationships. You know, I, I I used to laugh all the time that the cyber attack is is not a it's not a computer attacking you. A human being 
wrote that computer code. A human being um, set up something for that spear phishing campaign uh, to go. So it, it's 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 a human endeavor. This is this is human versus human, and uh, and and when you and you and you peel the technology away. It, it's still it's still just like going back to what Ron said at the beginning. It's going back to thousands of years of mindset. If you've built a fort, somebody ultimately will try to get in beyond your walls and into your into your citadel to get your most precious um, um, items, whether it be financial data, sensitive data, classified data, whatever it is. Um, adversaries, militia, cyber actors, advanced persistent threats. They want our most sensitive data. At Energy, um, you know, it, it's, it's very easy to know what they want to get out of us. When I was at Department of Defense, they, they wanted to get, you know, other things. Um, you know, you just think about the OPM breach back in 2015 and how that affected 30 million um, members that work for the U.S. government. I mean, that was a pretty significant breach. So, so to answer your question, um, the working group is getting after how do we build relationships? How do we, how do we defend holistically? How do we, how do we ensure standardization? Because as you build this partnership and capacity, there's always going to be a weak link. So how do you ensure that we're all securing and, and preparing at the same level? And uh, so training, awareness, education is a big piece. Uh, bringing in technology so we all have the same capability and capacity as it relates to uh, the technolo technological edge. And then figuring out innovation. Innovation isn't just the next bleeding edge or cutting edge feature of technology. It could be people and processes uh, that, that help you think your way out of a complex problem. And, uh, and, and so you, you need that triad of people, processes, and technology um, um, from all flavors and from all, um, all facets of cybersecurity to really be effective. And that's what I'm excited about, the collaboration and the partnership that's going on internally with DOE and externally. Yeah, we actually are, are big believers in in process and in methodology and in architecture, you know, design, uh, you know, an approach because a lot of times, uh, you know, as technology continues to change and mature and sometimes bleeding edge technology really is bleeding edge, especially for the, that's what we call it, cutting edge. It's like what's exactly is a cutting? Most of the times yourself as you try to use it. Uh, uh, but you know, the, a lot of times those approaches are are, are the, when you when you get a new method, an approach and a methodology, it can actually stand the test of time. The one I always love to quote is the whole field of supply chain management, operations management came out of our World War II experience in supply and logistics, and we created a whole field of management of a business management that organizations like Walmart use today to think about just in time inventory delivery. We don't think about the broadness of that, and without that, a lot of what we experience in our modern day e-commerce retail ecosystem would never have happened if we had been building things locally and trucking things, you know, doing all this stuff, even, even the way we load ships <laughs> has fundamentally changed based on sending a heck of a lot of material overseas before the days of the internet. So, um, so I think maybe just one last, last little follow-up here before we, I know we have always have our final question and Kathleen likes to, we asked that about the future, but just want to get an idea of people don't, aren't aware, even though a lot of what we're talking about kind of has that sort of defense perspective and, you know, comes from that. We're talking about department of energy and people may not be aware that department of energy is actually at the crux of a lot of our big systems, the labs, DOE has a massive supercomputer. We've seen it, <laughs> you know, uh, tons of these things. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the scope of that um, work that that uh, applies to the to Department of Energy and how that may apply to, to everything else we're talking about. 
You, you know, there's an old saying, especially when it comes to security. And by security, I mean security, physical, virtual, cyber, and so forth. Um, be brilliant in the basics. All right. So, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna emphasize that because there's many things you can't buy your way out of a problem. You can't, you know, technology your way out of a problem. You have to really think your way out of a problem by being brilliant in the basics. What do I mean by that? I mean the NIST um, special series, special publications, 800s are, are amazing. You know, the 37 Rev 2, the uh, 53 Rev 5. I mean, these are amazing documents that NIST has put out that if you follow the process specifically along the uh, risk management framework, along the security controls and, and how to get after them, you know, and there's a reason why there's, you know, so many different families of controls out there. And we look at 400 different types of controls before we introduce a new uh, software system into our network. You know, you got to be brilliant in the basics. If you're going to take a shortcut, you're absolutely introducing the potential of human error. And our adversaries are so savvy, they're going to sniff that out almost immediately. They're going to sense the vulnerability and they're going to figure out a way to exploit it and start their kill chain. So, so I'm, I, I, I'm going to emphasize um, is be brilliant in the basics, understand the risk. You know, there's, you know, there's, you know, and, and your risk tolerance has to be realistic. I mean, nobody wants to put a $10 lock on a $5 bicycle. All right. So at the end of the day, you have to really understand in the sense of what is the core business function I'm trying to defend and what is the cost uh, with our with our associated risk if we don't mitigate it to an appropriate level. And, and I think those types of conversations are sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, so so one, one, one of the things that I do with Department of Energy is we bring this information to the senior executives and let them make risk informed decisions. You know, and that's that's our job. And that's what I'm focused on right now. I mean, we have so many other incredibly smart people across the OCIO that look at new technologies, that, that look at different processes. Um, you know, my job is to look at the here and now. How do I how do I defend today? How do I increase the cybersecurity posture for tomorrow with the people, processes, and technology I currently have? Are there new tools out there uh, that I'd love to get my hands on? Absolutely. And uh, but you know we we follow the government budgetary process, which is usually built on a one two year cycle. Uh, so um, so so we we have to be patient and we have to be smart and we have to be methodical in our decision making and, and in our processes. And and lastly, I'm going to just say this real quick: the cyber workforce within Department of Energy is is we're made up of some incredibly smart, awesome people. Uh, and we have many good partnerships across different vendors that provide training, uh, and, and 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 we get after this continuous training every year. But the nanosecond you decide to skip a year or two of your training opportunities is when the adversary gets a step because you know they're always training themselves. That's very great to end with because that is true. It's right. Never take your foot off the gas pedal. You always need to be moving forward. You always need to be thinking about this. So wonderful to hear that there is a great team at Department of Energy thinking about it. We always like to end, as Ron mentioned, our podcast interviews with the same question because our guests are able to bring, you know, their specific and unique backgrounds in to really answer the question the way that they see this. So what do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? What I hope to see. Okay. Um, so number one, uh, I've got my first hope and wish, which is uh, ways to retain our incredibly talented cyber workforce. Um, the federal government uh, recently uh, passed a special salary rate, uh, which gives a bump 
specifically for our lower um, GS employees, our entry-level GS employees, uh, like GS9s, 10s, 11s, 12s, 13s, and such. Gives them a nice paid bump once it's fully implemented. Uh, that's going to put them on par with other companies like Deloitte and uh, Accenture Federal Services and, and, um, and Ernest and & Young and other other companies that could pay handsomely to very talented young people and young computer scientists, uh, as well as what the other agencies within the U.S. government think, think national security agency, if you will. All right. So it, it, it gives us the opportunity to to recruit, um, relocate and uh, retain the cyber workforce. So things such as cyber retention pay and the special salary rate for computer scientists and cybersecurity and IT professionals uh, is, is, is currently in the implementation phase. So that is important because if we lose our talented workforce, it doesn't matter how many Gucci tools we have, we're gonna always be behind the power curve because our adversaries are certainly recruiting their best and brightest as well. So that, that's thing one. Thing two is um, I think sometimes we need to stop chasing the next shiny object and, and understand the capability and capacity of our current tools and use them at 100%. Um, I, I could go into stories on, on why that's important, but, but just, just, I'm going to ask you to trust me, you use, train your workforce. And, and if a vendor has, if you've bought a tool, then use the full capacity of that tool and just not a little bit of it. I think that's also very important. And lastly, have honest conversations with executive leadership about risk tolerance and the risk that we know about. And, 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 and it's beyond just mis risk mitigation strategies or risk transfer strategies. It's about making decisions that are based on risk, based on the threats capability, and based what is the impact to, to operational and business core functions and have those honest conversations. I, I look at everything from a, from a human element. Uh, while I have many other friends that are very, very savvy and, and been in IT for decades, and they'll look at it a different way. And that's, again, where that, where that marriage of cybersecurity is a team sport that comes together, because I like putting the human factor on cybersecurity. I think that's great. And actually, this has been a good, great podcast. First of all, I think we're thrilled to have you here. I think you provide some fantastic perspectives. And also, uh, it's been an interesting and common refrain we've heard very recently, not too recently, but like how public sector is becoming a very attractive employer right now. I have to say, I want to shout out to our listeners who may be thinking about working with, with great teams, uh, working on a great mission, working with advanced technologies and having a growth, personal growth and, and a career path, growth path. People may not, you know, in the heyday of the startup ecosystem and technology companies, Silicon Valley was the big shiny, you know, thing. But actually, uh, we have seen the pendulum has really shifted quite a bit. One, I have to say Silicon Valley isn't treating their employees particularly well right now, and this may not necessarily be a particularly great growth path, but also the government has become very nimble, has become adoptive of technology, has adopted many of the philosophies of emerging technology growth, and provides, in many cases, a great mission across the board, whether we're talking federal civilian, federal defense, but even state and local. We have heard from some of our state governments like, hey, you know, we're here in Virginia, we're Maryland, we're dealing with unemployment. We're dealing with public health. We need your help. We want your help. We want you to be involved. So that's a really great um, place to be. And I'm glad that uh, we're hearing about these upgrades to, to pay and to competitiveness. I think that's a great place to be. So I just want to thank you so much for a, a great podcast, great interview, and really uh, helping shed some light and some, some really interesting topics for our listeners. Thank you very much for having me.
Yeah, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful discussion. And for our listeners, we've got some great resources. If you're looking to get more insight and detail on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics as well. So make sure to check out our resources, books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources tailored for our GovFuture listeners. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, make sure to become a GovFuture member if you haven't already to take advantage of all that the community has to offer, including access to a diverse network of government innovators, opportunities to collaborate with government agencies, exclusive access to events and resources, and a platform to help have a voice in shaping the future of government innovation. To learn more and sign up, go to govfuture.com slash join. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.